it's, it's great to be here this morning with you. My name is JJ McLeod. I'm the lead pastor for the church plant in Justin, Texas. And I get the privilege to preach today. And I want to start off with this question. Um, how many of y'all um, are just fascinated by ancient Greek culture? Maybe you love like the crazy plays that come from ancient Greece culture, you know, like insane family dramas. Maybe you love, uh, like for me as a kid, I love the movie, the Disney movie Hercules, right? There, it, was, it was my favorite movie. I don't know. There was action. There was comedy. It was just the best. I was like, I want to be Hercules. Um, some of y'all might be a little younger than me. You might like, uh, like the Percy Jackson books and movies. Um, you know, maybe you would just, you just love any kinds of things. Like when you think about it, like it's thousands of years later and still our culture is just fascinated by ancient Greece and, and it's been an inspiration for all kinds of different stories and poems and plays and movies to this day. It's crazy. Now you might be thinking why is this an important question to ask? Well the reason I do that is because today we're going to be looking at the book of Titus and, and Titus was written by the Apostle Paul who was one of the uh, most important uh, leaders in the early church and he's going to be writing to one of his disciples named Titus um, who lives on an island called Crete. Now Crete this was an island that was very, very, very Greek. Like, so Greek that they were infamous for their Greekness in the sense that they, they believed that Zeus was, was born on their island. And if you know anything about Zeus, Zeus was, was considered to be a liar and a seducer of women and would come from the heavens to, you know, just do all sorts of cause chaos or just to get out his wrath on, on his people. And so, like, the people of Crete had a very, like, like fragile idea and view of God in their minds. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't like what you and I think of God. And, and because of that, the, Crete, the Cretan people, they were, they were known, they were infamous for being kind of treacherous people. They, they were always known for being, as being liars. Uh, the men were, were oftentimes just mercenaries for hire. Uh, the women, instead of, uh, the young women, instead of going and getting married and starting families, like would have been a normal custom in that day and age, pretty common, they instead were pushing off marriage and, and instead were like, hey, we want to go and live it up and, and, and sow uh, our wild oats and, and just kind of be promiscuous and do all that. So, so the, the, to be a Cretan was like kind of like a slang term that was not good. It was like, oh, what a Cretan, right? We could probably say that today and people would be like, what'd you call me, <laughs> right? Like it's thousands of years later, we probably still would know that's not a good thing, but that's, that's how infamous these people were. And so Paul is writing to Titus who is living there, um, trying to bring the gospel to these people and the gospel has come. And there's people that are Christians, but one of the big problems was that the people that said they were Christians were living just like the rest of the Cretans. There was no difference between the unbeliever living on the island of Crete and the believer. Now, I know you're probably thinking to yourself, well, that doesn't sound so different than what's happening today. I know I grew up in Washington and I was pretty much the only person in my kind of group of friends and really only person I knew in my class that was like someone that went to church all the time and loved Jesus. Nobody else was. And it's not like they hated God necessarily. It's like nobody else is Christian. That wasn't a thing where I, when I grew up. And then I moved to Texas and I became a student pastor at a church where there was like eight churches on one road right? Like we can throw stones and hit two different churches from here. And so like culturally speaking here in the South and Texas, it's like, well, everybody's Christian, right? And the problem that causes is that 
oftentimes we can't differentiate between who are believers and who actually aren't because of the cultural things. And that's what was going on in the island of Crete. So Paul is going to address this to Titus and he's like, hey man, it's essential for you to declare these things and to hold people that say they're Christians accountable because it is so important. And so as we close out our Indivisible series today, we're going to be talking about our one hope and that our one hope is Jesus. So if you will, open up your Bibles to Titus chapter 2 and we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 15. 11 through 15. But before we get started, let's pray um, and ask God to speak this morning. Lord, we love you. Lord, we praise you. God, you are so good to us every single moment of every single day. And we do not deserve anything from you. And yet you just pour out your love on us so freely. And so God, this morning, we pray that we would uh, be listening to you in your word today so that we would be changed and encouraged and we would honor you with our hearts and our minds and Lord, with our lives. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Here's what it says. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. So, if you're taking notes today like the, the good Baptist I know you are, I want you to go ahead and write this down. This is going to be the main point of today's message, and it's this. It's that the hope of Jesus produces a life that looks different than the world. The hope of Jesus produces a life that looks different than the world. Now, we're going to be able to see this as we can kind of walk through these verses that Paul is writing to Titus. And there's going to be three primary ways that he explains this reality to him. And here's the first one, is that God sent Jesus to save us from our sin. God sent Jesus to save us from our sin. Now, again, before you kind of just push pause and you go, okay, yeah, like, Duh, like that's kind of obvious, isn't it? Well, it, the, although it might be obvious to us, you have to remember he's writing to Titus, living amongst the people who their idea of God coming down from heaven was not usually a very good one, right? When God came down from heaven, it was to take their wife away from them, right? It was to, to, to punish them. It was to hurt them oftentimes. It wasn't a very good thing. And so when we read these verses and we think about this point that, that God sent Jesus to save us from our sin, it's because Paul here says that it is for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So he wants to start off with Titus understanding and declaring to the people that are living on this island, no, God is not like Zeus. He is infinitely different than the idea that you have in your brain about what God is like. And when God has come down, when he did and when he returns, he came to save people. His grace has appeared. Why? For a purpose, to bring salvation. So what I want you to notice here is when we think about, about these verses and about this point is that Paul is trying to communicate the reality that the grace of God is an active grace that pursues people. Think about that for a moment. 
God didn't just sit in heaven and try to find some way to not get involved and hopefully people could be saved. No, he actively pursued us in the middle of our losses, in the middle of our brokenness. And he came from heaven via his son and he lived in our place and he died to pay the price for our sins and he rose from the grave and he went back to heaven. He's coming back one day of which we are waiting for, we're excited about. And so our hope is placed in Jesus because even though we deserve to, to stand before God as guilty people that have, that have served ourselves and worshiped ourselves and wanted to be our own gods, and we have this, this separation that is between us, God has come from heaven to, to fill that gap, to be the substitutionary sacrifice in our place so that we'll be able to experience the forgiveness of sins, so that our relationship might be mended and made right with God. This would have been a message, and oftentimes was, that was completely just out of left field for someone that was Greek. But what we see here is that, that this grace is the foundation for the hope that we have in Jesus. And it is a grace that pursues and it is active and it chases us. I love the way that he talks about it in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1. He's writing to another one of his disciples. In fact, he calls Timothy um, his true son in the faith. Um, and he says this in verses 9 through 10. He says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purposes and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Y'all think about that for a moment. Even before the world was created, even before you even had the opportunity to say, no, God, I don't want you. I want to make myself God. God sent Jesus before all that to be your savior. To send grace to you so that your sins could be forgiven and made right before him. That is incredibly good news. And he's saying, Titus, this is the foundation. This is the message that the people that are living on your island need to hear. This is the idea that they have to have of God, that he is a gracious, loving God who literally sacrifices his own son in our place to die for them. So God sends Jesus to save us from our sins. But he continues on. He doesn't stop there. Look at verses 13 and 14 again with me. He says, And waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So he starts off with talking about how Jesus has come to save us from the penalty of our sins that we rightly deserve to be judged by God. But because of Jesus, we are set free. We are seen as righteous before God. Our standing is, is, is not guilty any longer. And then he moves on forward to saying that God sent Jesus to purify a people for himself. God sent Jesus to purify a people for himself. Now, I want to ask you a question. Why do you think Paul might fixate on this? Why do you think he might stop here and go, this seems important to me? Now, some of you all that know your Bible, you might be thinking of Bible verses and going, well, God says that he is holy, therefore we should be holy. And that's true. God says that because he is holy, he can have nothing to do in sin. And that's why there is this separation between God and man because of sin. And that's true. 
But is that, is that really what's going on here? Is that the focus of what Paul is saying to Titus right here? Well, in order to get the answer, we have to look a little bit earlier if we go to verses 9 and 10. Let's go there. Let's look at this. Here's what it says. It says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And so it's important to understand the, the whole beginning of, of Titus 2 is focused on talking with older men and younger men and then older women and younger women saying, hey, this is actually how you ought to be living as Christians in your world. I know nobody else is living this way, right? I, I understand that the hope of God, it produces in us, the hope of Jesus, it, it produces a life that's different than everybody else. And so he's talking about those things. But then he goes to speak to bond servants. Now, if you don't know anything about bond servants, uh, bond servants were people that would have found themselves in some sort of dire situation where whether it be like they got injured or famine hit or, or maybe they had some sort of outstanding debt that they couldn't pay back. And so what they would do is they would take themselves and their family and they would put themselves under a contract with another person that could hire them and, and give them a place to, to live and to give them work to do and food to eat. And essentially they were their boss, but not just like while they're at work, but like over their whole life. So they, they become like these indentured servants for a season, right? And oftentimes, as you can imagine, especially on this island, because they are treacherous people, they're infamous for being liars and scoundrels, right? They're the original dirty rotten scoundrels. <laughs> um, they were, have often been mistreated and abused, taken advantage of, like the contract not being met. And, and it was common in their day and age on this island for lots of rebellions to take place because of that. And Paul, he, he, he points out bond service because he's like, listen, you can't be a part of that. Whether you became a bondservant after you trusted in Jesus or you already were one and then you came to know Christ. Listen, you can't get caught up in trying to rise up and rebel and fight for your rights and do all those things. That's not what's most essential. That's not what's most important. What's most important is that you adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I don't use the word adorn very often. In fact, I don't know if I ever have, <laughs> right? I, I think of Adorn, I think of Christmas and Christmas trees. I know some of y'all are already excited now that Halloween's over that you're like Christmas time, right? It's disrespectful Thanksgiving, by the way, but I'll let it slide, okay? But I don't use that language. So what does that mean? Well, the idea of adorning here that Paul is talking about, he's like, listen, you need to make the gospel beautiful. And it's not that the gospel is not beautiful, it is but the way that you live your life, especially as somebody that is living in maybe one of the most awful circumstances, it is going to either be a hindrance to the gospel or it will be a partner to the gospel. And I don't think we, if we're being honest, we like that very much. We kind of wish like God's going to do his thing, whether I, that I join in with him or not. And like, it's like, yes, God is sovereign and his purposes are going to be accomplished. But guess what? God has created us and he has saved us to purify people for himself. Why? Not just so that we can be clean and holy. That's good. That's important. Not just so that people would look to us and go, oh, wow, like they're really moral. Well, I wish I could be a little moral like that. I don't know how many times I've heard stuff like that said, man, I really wish I could have your discipline. <laughs> like, like that's good. I hope that encourages you. But no, it's so much more than that. 
It's because God is wanting our lives to adorn the gospel, to make the gospel beautiful so that when people see us and we talk about Jesus, they go, wow. And at this time and in this place, amongst these people in Crete, that wasn't happening. The gospel was not compelling to the Cretans because there was no difference between them and the believers. And so Paul's like, listen, God is purifying the people for himself for a missionary cause because people need to hear the gospel and we need to make sure that your life is not a hindrance but it is a partner to the gospel so that when people hear about me, they will turn from their sin and they will trust in me and they will find new life in this grace and this hope that I have given in my son Jesus. We will be either a partner or a barrier to the gospel. Now let's keep going. Look at verse 14. It says that Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I love this. So if you got your Bible and you're someone that marks up your Bible, I want you to circle who, okay? Maybe circle it twice. And I want you to underline zealous for good works. Paul is saying right here that God is desiring to have a people who are zealous for good works. Now what kind of good works are we talking about here? Well, this is the third point. It's that God sent Jesus to move believers to live for his kingdom. Did you hear me? God sent Jesus to move people in their hearts, in their souls, that there would be something that takes place inside of them that they can't stay the same and do the same thing they've always done because it's easy. But no, he's calling them to live differently. That's what hope does. And it's to live for his kingdom. You are people who are zealous for good works. And when we think about this, and I want you to write this down, the, the natural response to a grace that pursues is to be a person that goes. The natural response to, to a grace that pursues us is to be a person that goes to others. It, didn't, it wouldn't make any sense for us to think about the fact that God left the perfection of heaven to come into the brokenness of sinful people and die in our place so that we could be saved for then for us to just be like, well, I'm gonna believe that. Thank God I'm saved. Maybe I'll become a better person. And then that's it. No, he purifies a people for himself so that when lost people that don't know Jesus hear the gospel and they see our lives, it goes, wow, that's a beautiful message. And because of that, we realize, like, man, we got to go. We got this beautiful message, and God is calling us to something. And, and it's, I, I don't know what to tell you, but I have to do something. There's this zeal inside of me. There's this passion inside of my heart that I have to go to these people that don't know Jesus. And that's exactly what's taking place here. You know, when you think about Matthew 28, verse 19, you think about the Great Commission. It says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Whether we look at Jesus and his coming from heaven or the disciples and they're sending to go or the 72 or Paul talking to Titus here, we see this idea that we are called to go. If you've done some maybe extra study on that verse, you understand that the go there is really more like as you are going. 
make disciples. It, it means like there's this assumptive nature to somebody that has experienced the grace of God, that has trusted in Jesus, that they're going to be going, that they're going to be sharing, right? That you can't help it. You can't help but want to tell people about Jesus because you once were lost, but now you're found. You were once broken, but now God's made you whole. You were once a sinner that was just left guilty before God and separated from it, but now he's drawn you close. I have, I have got to go. And so there's this assumption there when it comes to the very, the great commission, the thing that Jesus said right before he went to heaven, the most important thing that we can be a part of. And he says, go as you are going and make disciples. You know, I think that in the church today, especially in the Western world, even more specifically in the South, because Christianity is so part of our culture and so part of just like our normal kind of rhythms of life and church and all those things that we miss out on so much of the joy and the purifying, transforming work of God in our lives because we just get in the rut and the routine of, of waking up, going to work, being a good employee, and then coming home and eating dinner with our family and maybe go to church on Sunday and be a part of a connect group and we feel good. But then when we really think about it, you go, but is my walk with Jesus really that satisfying? If I were to rate my relationship with God on a scale of 110, when I go, man, it's a 10. And it's not because of me, but because God is just constantly doing a work in my heart that even when I mess up, he picks me back up and he sends me back out and I'm reaching people for Jesus. And God is just sending people my way that need to be discipled. Like I can't explain it. And I think most people probably say, no, that does not describe my walk with Jesus at all. And I think it's because we miss out and we under, misunderstand that Jesus didn't just save us to save us from the penalty of our sin. And he didn't just save us so that we could become better people, be a little more moral, be a little, little more like Jesus. And those are true. But he saved us for the purpose that we would then go just like he left heaven and came to us to preach the gospel, good news, to make disciples, to be about the kingdom and not about our kingdom. And right now, friends, your church, First Colleyville, they have a vision to plant churches all over the world, planted in Madrid and Lusaka they're going to be planning in, in, in Israel soon and, and, and they've run in Montreal and, and as we see, we know New York is coming up. And right now, just a few months out, we're about to plant in Justin, Texas. Not even 30 minutes from here. And in Justin, Texas, within a 10-mile radius, there are 160,000 people that don't know Jesus. Think about that. Not only that, but the town of Justin itself is going to grow by 50,000 people within the next 10 years because this is one of the fastest growing places in the nation. I don't know if you guys know that. If you've been over there, you've seen the traffic, you're like, that shouldn't surprise you, right? 50,000 people growing in that one town, and that's not even counting the areas around, the other towns around. And I just got to believe if the Apostle Paul were here today, and he knew about the reality of the lostness of Justin and the growth that's coming that's just probably going to increase the amount of lostness. 
and he knew that this church was planting, starting a new church in that area, I just have to believe that he would stand up here today and he would go, so what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Will you take on the posture of Isaiah when he said, here I am, Lord. Send me. Or will you just hope someone else will go? Pray, God, I, man, I'm expecting God's going to send some people from our church. Not me, you know, because, you know, I don't, I got, we got all the reasons, right? Or will you pray and ask God, God, send me. Send my family. Why not? Yes, I know, this church is great and, and I love the theater seats and I love the, the children's ministry and our connect group is awesome. But guess what? There's 160,000 people that don't know Jesus that are not very far from you here today. And they need someone to go to them. And the question I'm asking is, is it, will it be you? Because I think nothing honors God more than we say, God, I don't just want my relationship to be made right with you. But God, I want to be used by you in my life to see as many people come to know Jesus as possible. And if our church has a vision to plant churches, that plant churches until Jesus comes back and I can be a part of that, put me in coach. I know it may not be easy. There may be discomfort. That there's scary in, in the unknown and that I, this is new to me. And I, maybe I don't feel equipped. But guess what? If you have Jesus, if Jesus is changing you, you got all you need. And God will use you if you will just say, Lord, send me. So I'm going to pray here in a moment. But as we're praying, I want to ask you to, to genuinely pray and ask God, God, are you sending me? Are you calling me to go? Maybe that was not on your radar at all. <laughs> but who knows? God might just be doing a work in your heart right now. Won't you pray with me? Lord, we thank you today when we look at the words of Paul to Titus that we get to see this one hope that produces in us a life that is different than the world. A life that is marked by the grace of God that has appeared and, is, and has brought salvation to us and that transforms us and it, and it purifies us to be your people. But it's for a purpose. It's for a reason. And it's so that we might be able to be sent out to the nations, to the world that is lost and that is broken and that is hurting. And God, I just pray if there's anyone that's sitting in here today that's just been expecting other people to go, that's just been hoping God would send someone else in the church, and I'll pray. God, I pray that you just do a work in their heart right now and just reveal to them whether or not you're sending them, whether or not you're calling them to be a part. And God, if there's anybody here today who Maybe this is the first time I'm really hearing the story of Christianity, really understanding what Christians believe. God, I just pray today that you would save them, that they would respond to you in faith, that they would understand that if they would just turn from trusting in themselves and they would turn and, and put their hope in you, the one hope, hope of Jesus, and they would confess with their mouth 
that Jesus Christ is Lord. God, that you would save them, that all their sins would be wiped away, that they become a brand new creation so that if they were to die today or they were to go and, and, and meet you as you return from heaven, God, that they would know that they are right before you, not because of themselves, but because of what you have done for them. God, if that's the case, I pray they would do that and then respond accordingly. Lord, we don't deserve you. We really don't. But God, we thank you that you every day pursue us with your grace. And you pour out your kindness and your love to us. And we thank you for it. We praise you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.